0: nothing happens in ulysses that's the essential thing and yet everything happens
1: ulysses is the most mountainous it's the most extraordinary and variable and ruminative and gifted and dazzling and everything else book and it's like 18 novels in one because the 18 chapters are written in completely different styles.
2: It doesn't behave like a novel. It branches out into a play and we give it the attention that only poetry usually uh, demands.
3: The first time I picked it up as a curious teenager in the 70s, I found it extraordinary, even bizarre. It was breathtaking, often difficult, but mesmerising too. Nothing I'd ever read was remotely like it. It was explosive and revolutionary, in a way that books never seemed to be. Parts of it reminded me more of the Sex Pistols or the punk singer Patti Smith than of any of the dusty classics we'd read in school. Those sagas full of governesses and Victorian heroes. One man who was to become a confidant of Joyce in Zurich was the English artist Frank Budgen. Shortly after their initial meeting, Budgen remembers an evening stroll with his Irish friend. It was here that Joyce began to tell him about the book he was going to write. It was going to be a novel called Ulysses.
4: He told me why he had chosen that hero in preference to any other. It was because Ulysses was the greatest all rounder that history, legend, or fiction had to show. He was a father and son, husband and lover, pacifist and warrior, home bird and wanderer, statesman and inventor. Homer's Ulysses took 20 years from door to door. The hero of Joyce's book was to do the round trip in as many hours.
3: Joyce's obsession with the figure of Ulysses went back to his childhood in a gloomy and provincial Dublin. Loosely basing his book on Homer's epic was clever and original. It allowed him to write about chaos, but underpinned by a careful structure, like a wild solo in jazz against a steady, solid drumbeat. Readers in 1922 would probably have been more knowledgeable about ancient Greece than most of us are today. But even if we know nothing about the ins and outs of classical literature, Joyce's hero, Leopold Bloom, has survived the ravages of time. An ordinary man, a canvasser for newspaper advertisements, he wanders through this summer day of daydreams and fantasies, worried about his marriage, his wife's affair with a younger man, but also endearingly marvelling at the world around him. He is Jewish by faith, though not particularly religious, and is regarded by some of his acquaintances as an outsider in Catholic Ireland. In our own age, when we speak of economic migrants, asylum seekers and refugees, we might remember that the greatest Dubliner in the history of Irish fiction is himself the child of an immigrant family. And as Joyce enthusiast Gerry O'Flaherty points out, Bloom stands for us all.
0: He is every man, really. He has all the foibles of every man, Good, bad, indifferent, ridiculous, everywhere, in which we all see ourselves but never admit.
2: Joyce seemed to have done someone who is both very ordinary,
3: average, and yet highly specific. Fritz Sen, director of the Joyce Foundation in Zurich.
2: Bloom seems to be uh, sensual. He is also very curious. He wants to know uh, what causes what um, he is well-meaning and I think his great quality is that he can empathise with other characters. And of course Joyce here quite frankly showed aspects that normally don't come to the surface or we don't talk about.
5: Quietly
3: he read, restraining himself. The first column and yielding but resisting began the second. Midway his last resistance yielding He allowed his bowels to ease themselves quietly as he read, reading still patiently. That slight constipation of yesterday, quite gone. Hope it's not too big. Bring on piles again. No, just right.
0: Bloom, in the fourth episode, goes to the lavatory. He broke ground that way. I think uh, Judge Wolsey, when he was summing up, why it should be allowed into the United States, Something of quite well. He said it was emetic rather than pornographic, and that means you, you could get sick reading it rather than be <laughs> titillated by it, and I think that is a great tribute to its realism.
3: Gerry O'Flaherty. So this was new, the sheer detail and breadth of ambition. There are certainly other writers who are more gripping storytellers, But here was a day with ordinary people doing mundane things, and a writer more preoccupied with the workings of the inner mind than events or narrative.
2: When you study biology, you take one particular cell, often it's been a frog for some reason, and study this in detail and think the rest will be in some way like this. It is representative, the macrocosm reflecting the microcosm. And so he took something up, and it almost seemed to me as Joyce thought... Give me anything, give me any day and uh, any little topic and I make something out of it.
3: And the significance of the single day on which Ulysses is set, June 16th, 1904, though not immediately evident from the beginning of the book, is explained by a friend of the family, Maria Jolas.
6: When one thinks how young they both were, when they first met on that June 16th, 1904, It seems extraordinary that both he and she should have known that it would be till death us do part. For in reality, and it was she herself who told me this, that is the significance of this date, the date Joyce fixed for all time in Ulysses. It was on that day that he first met Nora Barnacle.
3: The story of James Joyce and Nora Barnacle is an extraordinary one. A Galway-born chambermaid in a Dublin hotel, she and Joyce were smitten with each other, it seems, at first meeting. They eloped to Europe, survived hard years of poverty and lived together, sometimes stormily, until Joyce's death in 1941. Their early relationship appears from letters to have been one of passionate sexual love. But Edna O'Brien understands that life can rarely have been easy for Nora, as Joyce isolated himself more and more through his work.
1: He used to say he went to the Azores every day with the writing, he would have to. You can't write like that and actually communicate much with people. And when you come back from the Azores that evening, you're a fairly depleted person. But they remained together all their lives and were inseparable, which is something for a man so as he came to be courted by all the world. That's a very big thing. And it shows what a profound creature Nora Barnacle was. We don't really know much about her because she wasn't driven to the written word like he was. In fact, she didn't care much about the written word, as he said ruefully. She got through 27 pages of Ulysses, and that unfortunately included the title page.
3: During the writing of Ulysses, Frank Budgen was a frequent visitor to Joyce's noisy flat in Zurich, where talk was generally about the great work in progress. In the
4: living room, the children did their homework and chattered away in Zuri which they had picked up at school. The house language was Italian. Nora Joyce was a woman of stately presence and forthright, independent manner. She took a humorously disparaging view of her husband's work and sometimes during the talk weighed in with and is he still talking to you about that old book of his? Jim, you oughtn't to do it. You'll bore Mr. Budgeon stiff. And referring to the heroine of the book, what do you think of a book, Mr. Budgeon, with a big, fat, horrible married woman as the heroine? Molly Bloom. Joyce liked these interventions. He told me that he was talking to a visitor about Irish wit and humour, and his wife had joined in with, what's all this about Irish wit and humour? Have we got any book about with some of it in? I'd like to read it if we have.
3: It's striking that Joyce didn't number many women among his closest circle. Nora may not have realised just how deeply she would influence his work.
1: The style, no commas, no full stops, no capital letters or anything, is the very same as was Nora's. It was those times because women weren't educated. They're
6: all so different. Boylan and talking about the shape of my foot he noticed at once even before he was introduced when i was in the dbc with poldie laughing and trying to listen i was wagging my foot we both ordered two teas in plain bread and butter i saw him looking with his two old maids of sisters when i stood up and asked the girl where it was what do i care with it dropping out of me and that black clothes bridges he made me buy take you half an hour to let them down wetting all myself
1: the actual prose style of Molly Bloom is, is so remarkable, and that thing that you feel it ha- wasn't written, it was sort of, came out as one great orgasmic burst. Of course, it was written and took a long time to write. He called it his most secret conception. I think along with Chaucer's Wife of Bath, it is probably the most complete and when i say raw it's uh, exquisitely rendered but raw in terms of appetite and passion depiction of a woman ever written she is larger than womankind she embodies everything that women have aware ashamed to admit to and that a man should give her his voice is something that shows and proves that all great artists and James Joyce was, are androgynous.
3: Edna O'Brien. In Ulysses, Joyce the artist also gave life to young Stephen Daedalus the artist, misleading many into thinking that this is Joyce himself. But according to Joyce's friends, if he could be occasionally gloomy, he could more often be witty, talkative and mischievous, very far from the dilettantish and sometimes over-intellectualising Stephen. Stephen is the artist, as it were.
0: But if you look at Stephen, the, the fictional character, he hasn't produced anything. He doesn't seem to think that he should work for a living. And you say, what has he got to back all these things up? And it's just a potential that's there and uh, nothing else. He has a more abstract mind. He
2: also, in his mind, uh, seems to formulate sentences that you could almost uh, print. His mind is saturated with abstruse things. And another thing is it's not easy to follow Stephen in either what he says and often uh, what he thinks.
3: Ineluctable modality of the visible, at least that if no more thought through my eyes. Signatures of all things I am here to read. Sea spawn and sea rack. The nearing tide. That rusty boot. Snot green. Blue silver. Rust. Colored signs. Limits of the diaphane. Readers in 1922 must have been bewildered by a writer who celebrated our secret mental processes more than anyone had before. A novelist fascinated by the associative nature of the mind, by coincidences and similarities rather than events. Although this jumping from one idea to another, the stream of consciousness technique, had been used by previous writers, especially the French novelist Edouard Dujardin, it was Joyce who would use it to most stunning effect.
2: Joyce found a formula to fuse it with normal statement, uh, narrative. uh, He opened the door or something of that sort, and with dialogue, and this kind of free mixture where you often even don't see where we move into the interior monologue. That was something new, and early readers had a hard time, it seems. And by the way, the differences between, you might say, narrative statements and interior monologue, they're our problems, the critics and certainly not the
3: artist. Eminent writers these days have laptops and offices, helpful publishers and Arts Council grants. It wasn't like that for Joyce in Zurich. Everyday life went on rowdily around him, with the young family, close quarters and little tranquillity. His sister Eileen was summoned from Dublin to come and live with Jim and Nora. She paints a vivid picture of how Joyce worked.
6: He wrote at night mostly, and he lay always across... The bed on his stomach, when he wrote with a huge blue pencil, a huge blue pencil, like a carpenter's pencil, and a white coat on him to reflect on the paper you see to give reflection because his sight was so bad uh, the piano music always touched him, and if Jim had an inspiration, the piano was his call, and he would go and and give vent to feeling and singing and even sitting in the dark and uh, kind of magnificently singing. You hear Jim's voice coming through the doors and the windows of Trieste and the people all standing down and clapping him. That's all thronged outside his voice was absolutely marvellous at the time. Oh, he was marvellous. And at other times he would be quite a blank. His life would be quite slow and he'd be depressed and he'd be singing sacred music and uh, very much to himself would stay. He would stay very much alone.
0: Once
5: in the dear dead days before...
3: And if you happen to find yourself in the company of Joyce, he'd regard you as raw material for his writing. Frank Budgeon points out the likelihood of something you said, a joke perhaps, or an unusual description, ending up recycled into a perfect Joycean sentence.
5: Well, as I got to know Joyce better, his method of composition seemed to me to be to collect words. He invented them himself, he put them down himself, but then he was always listening 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 for every crumb of talk he could get from anybody at the table anybody in the street anybody on the tram car from me and from anybody else he wanted words and words and words Eh, yes he would always got a little tablet in his vest pocket i should think about two inches square And uh, on any occasion that seemed to him to warrant it, he dragged out this tablet and put down a word.
3: Although Joyce's family were always his main social unit, he loved going out to eat and drink with friends. He had a fondness for the best hotels and excellent restaurants, including when he barely had money to pay the rent. Perhaps he inherited this financial nonchalance from his father. Perhaps he was compensating for an often hungry childhood... Certainly money, or the lack of it, is always a factor in Ulysses. Where Dubliners spend and borrow and lend, the details of their transactions recorded like everything else. For Joyce himself, before fame brought some small degree of material security, the struggle to meet the bills was constant. He was fortunate to win the support of a generous patron, the American editor of the Egoist magazine, Harriet Weaver.
6: A relative of mine had left me some money and that I really didn't need it. I made it over to Mr Joyce to be a help to him. And uh, he's no financier and he greatly exaggerated the amount. He didn't understand at all.
3: Through a series of introductions in the literary circle and a move to Paris as advised by the poet Ezra Pound, Joyce at last met the woman who was first to publish his book, Sylvia Beach of the famous bookstore Shakespeare and Company.
7: It was in the autumn of 1920 that I went to a party with Adrienne Monnier to the house of the poet André Speer in Neuilly. When we got there we found Ezra Pound and uh, he had brought uh, James Joyce and Mrs Joyce. Monsieur André Speer had come rushing up to me and told me in great excitement the Irish writer James Joyce is here. I was quite overwhelmed, it was so unexpected for me to come suddenly face to face with this man for whom I had such a deep admiration, and I was quite trembling. After lunch, I got up the courage to speak to him, however, and uh, he soon put me at my ease. He was a very easy man to talk with, his manners were so courteous, and he was very gentle, slightly humorous, and rather melancholy at the same time. I thought he was delightful, his musical voice, his long fingers with several rings on them, and somehow they didn't seem to make him look effeminate either, and his fair skin, he was always flushing, and his very small feet, and his way of drooping against the bookcase.
3: After Nora Barnacle and Harriet Weaver, Sylvia Beach is the third in a blessed trinity of women to whom Joyce owes his immortality. In fact, she had far more faith in the future of Ulysses than Joyce claimed to have himself.
7: Although I had no money, and the printer was very trusting about that and said it could be paid for when the subscriptions came in. Joyce, of course, said there would be no subscriptions and that nobody would buy such a dull book. I felt entirely confident about it, and I issued the prospectus that I began to send out all over the world.
3: One of those who received this prospectus with extracts from the book was George Bernard Shaw. Though he didn't part with his 150 francs to buy a copy, he nevertheless saw the book, according to his grumpily written reply, as an accurate portrayal of the city he was relieved to have left.
8: It is a revolting record of a disgusting phase of civilization, but it is a truthful one, and I should like to put a a cordon round Dublin to round up every male person in it between the ages of 15 and 30, force them to read it and ask them whether on reflection they can see anything amusing in all that foul-mouthed, foul-minded derision and obscenity. To you, possibly, it may appeal as art. You are probably, uh, you see, I don't know you, a young barbarian be glamoured by the excitements and enthusiasms that art stirs up in romantic youth but to me it is all hideously real i have walked those streets and known those shops and heard and taken part in those conversations i escaped from them to england at the age of 20 and 40 years later have learned from the books of mr joyce that slack-jawed blaggardism is as rife in young Dublin as it was in 1870.
3: So what of Dublin, the detail of everyday life in Dublin? How strange the modern boomtown would seem to Joyce, this sophisticated European capital with its bistros and cappuccino bars, where a cigarette in the pub is no longer permitted, but you can buy a pack of condoms with your weekly groceries. It's a place we Irish take for granted in terms of familiarity. But how important is the actual city for those very many Joyceans who may not be familiar with it? Fritz Zenn. There are many
2: readers, perhaps again the majority in the world, who do not know Dublin and still get something out of the book. In some way it isn't essential from a Point of literature, whether any place mentioned does or did exist or not. Um, uh, It so happens that Joyce based it. So, this is another one of the, you might say, structural foundations of it when the book is so fluid and volatile and hard to grasp, especially on the first reading, to have the reality of Dublin.
3: And since it was so real, Jerry O'Flaherty tells us how this account of Dublin life was actually received in the Dublin of 1922 where the book though never actually banned was certainly disapproved of it was scandalous in
0: as it was considered a dirty book number 1 it was published in Paris I mean <laughs> which which at that time was sin city as it were and uh, the fact that it couldn't come out anywhere else was enough to condemn it On the other hand, most people couldn't read it. The other thing was, among a certain number of people, you must remember all of Joyce's acquaintances and school friends and people who knew him
3: were still living here. And the question was, are you in it? One of those who was in it, thinly disguised by an alias, was Oliver St. John Gogarty, model for Buck Mulligan. He and Joyce did cohabit briefly in the Martello Tower at Sandy Cove, an area whose real estate values have changed just a little since 1904. Gogarty paid a rental of £8 a year. They once had an English visitor, an Oxford medical student called Trench, and he, like Gogarty and the moody poet Stephen Dedalus, all appear in the opening chapter with Trench rebaptized Haines. Its account of a disturbing nightmare and of a huffy departure from the tower are all based on real events, as later testified by Oliver Gogarty.
5: Two in the morning, Trench, whom we didn't know very well, got a a frightful nightmare, screamed, there's the Black Panther, and produced a Colt revolver and shot off two bullets in the dark. Greatly alarming, Joyce. Well, I knew it was one of these nightmares that might recur, but I took the precaution of stealing the gun, the pistol, the revolver and uh, surely enough trench awoke in another 20 minutes and screamed again i said i can take care of the menagerie and i deliberately shot down the fish uh, uh, kettle and all the other tin cans that were over joyce's bed he rose solemnly dressed himself in his faded trousers pulled on his shirt and his white yachting cap and his tennis shoes took his ash plant and left the tower and never came back
8: joyce had come into the library that morning and had told me that he had been chucked out of the tower.
3: Other real-life Dubliners stroll the pages of Ulysses, among them the librarian and essayist William McGee, who wrote under the pseudonym John Eglinton, and who recalls encountering Joyce, just as he encounters Stephen in Ulysses, in Dublin's National Library on the morning after Joyce left the tower for good. The young poet was holding court to anyone who would listen, swapping interpretations of Shakespeare's Hamlet
8: I I have a sort of feeling that there was a talk about Hamlet and that I may have said something as ridiculous as what he credits me with in, in Ulysses.
3: So, for someone who, for the most part of his life, inhabited this Dublin of 1904 in his mind, the natural question for friends like Frank Budgen to ask Joyce, as he remembers he once did in Paris, was if he ever thought of going back to Dublin... Joyce's stated reasons for not doing so surprised his friend. Expecting the answer
4: that the actual Dublin at that time would tend to efface the rich, legendary Dublin of his memory and his imagination. What he in fact replied was, sheer
3: cowardice, Budgen, I'm afraid of getting shot. It's hard to credit now that he and his family could have seriously been afraid. Joyce did return briefly in 1909 and 1912 for short and generally unhappy visits. But friends say that living in Europe, he would always want to meet tourists if they were from Dublin. He constantly inquired from Irish visitors after this old friend or that, about details of life in the city which, for all his wanderings, he often referred to as home. And here is the central paradox of Joyce, both as man and exiled artist. He railed against a Dublin he saw as narrow-minded and paralysed, but he never wrote a line about anywhere else. Indeed, he boasted that if the city were somehow to be destroyed, it could be rebuilt from the ruins because his book would preserve it. A wildly inaccurate claim, as it turns out, but one that reveals much about his feelings. And perhaps this contradiction is what gives the book its amazing energy, compelling us to stay with it even through its moments of difficulty. His extraordinary skill with words, his magnificent imagination the fastidiousness that would make him work an entire day on a single sentence. Every shred of talent and doggedness he possessed was poured into immortalising the city of his birth and freeing it, at least in language, from what he called its servile, contemptible role. His deepest wish, even at the closing moment of his life, was for this to be comprehended, as his sister Eva recalls.
6: That his last words were, that he said, does nobody understand me?
3: And this is indeed important to understand. There is nothing of hatred or bitterness in Ulysses. It is a book about generosity, forgiveness and acceptance. In short, about the business of being human. It's a comedy, a tragedy, a grand opera of the everyday. But in the end, it is a love song to a place and a people.
0: He had a picture of Dublin in his head from 1904. And I think that if he came back, say, as the famous writer that he was in the 1930s, he would have seen a different Dublin. Everything would have been green instead of red. As it was, his Dublin was an aspic. He had it as his model and his background for everything he did. And I don't think he wanted that to be changed at all. Although he said, when asked, would he ever go back to Dublin? He said, have I ever left it?